Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 139, week 139, volume 139, number fucking 139. How you going guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Mike of Devil Driver, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's kick things off with a bit of feedback, a bit of what's been going on. This week, special mention, special shout out to Bo, Angel and Genevieve. Thank you so very, very much, guys, for leaving the show a rating and review on iTunes. Thank you for the five stars and thank you for all your kind, generous words. For everyone else listening, if you haven't yet, help us out. Get on iTunes, give us a rating and review. You can leave a rating or review even if you don't use iTunes podcasts. But if you do, it's essential to helping the show grow. It goes into an algorithm and gets the show out to more listeners. So if you've got some time this week, help us out with a rating and review. Enough of the ramblings, let's get into the main part of the show. This week, I got to sit down with Mike of Devil Driver. First thing I got to say, thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So when I say Devil Driver, I think our entire listening base will know of the name. They are a big player in the heavy music scene. Been around since the early 2000s. Mike joined around 2004. Devil Driver have nine albums to their name. Mike has been a part of eight of them. I remember discovering this band as it broke onto the scene. And I've been a fan ever since. I love their discography. It's solid from back to front. Their recent album that they've just released, Dealing With Demons Volume 1, maintains the consistency of this band. And I was stoked to get Mike on the show. For The Mosh Zone, this is member number two of Devil Driver. We've had Dez on previously. After this chat, if you want to go back, you can have a listen to that too. Mike was great, he was entertaining, he was relaxed, he was fun, he was open. Great dialogue, great conversation. That chat with Mike is coming up now. So everyone gets the same start off and that's basically, you know, not a heavy band, but do you remember an artist that opened your world to music being in existence at a young age? Yeah, it was. I would say it was... Um kind of a cross between Def Leppard and Oingo Boingo. Mm. Now, what drew you into that? Uh, with Oingo Boingo, I had an older brother and sister that were teenagers in the 80s, you know, and I was born in 1981. So they were very much glued to MTV back in those days. And, you know, they listened to a lot of bands like Oingo Boingo, Depeche Mode, Tears for Fears, and, uh, you know, a lot of popular 80 band, 80s bands at the time. So I always heard the music resonating out of their bedrooms or, you know, I was walking by when they were watching MTV. And, you know, I, I remember getting a tape of Oingo Boingo's Only a Lad that I think my sister had made. And, you know, that was, you know, I had a Walkman when I was really young, you know, this is probably when I was like five or six years old. And, you know, I listened to that record a lot. 
And I'm still a huge Danny Elfman fan to this day. And I like a lot of, not so much their later stuff, but all their early albums I'm a big fan of. So that was kind of where it started. And then eventually, when I started watching MTV on my own, I saw Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me video. And that was really the moment where it really hit me that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm, I was born 83, so I remember this time frame as well. And musical discovery was literally, like you said, it was TV, print press, um, what you heard on the radio. So, I mean, you discover Def Leppard and then where's your path with discovery go? Do you automatically go heavier or do you stick with the glam rock kind of stuff for a while before you find heavier music? Yeah, I was, I kind of got into the glam stuff like, um, you know, Scorpion. Well, I don't even know if you consider the Scorpions glam, but they're around that time. But I got really into the Scorpions. Um, you know, a little bit of Poison, a little bit of Warrant, but, but th those two bands kind of came and go pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, you know, all those, all those people. Mm. And eventually, you know, I didn't discover Metallica until they came out with the Black Record and I saw them perform on the MTV Video Music Awards when they played Enter Sandman. And... So that became my next favorite band, along with Metallica, or sorry, Megadeth and Pantera. Mm. And so those were kind of like the big three throughout middle school. And then my sophomore year of high school, when I was 15, you know, I discovered Marilyn Manson. And then everything just kind of got turned upside down for me again. You know, I was, you know, the full-blown goth kid in high school. I started really getting into industrial and goth bands like sisters of mercy kmfdm um and uh you know skinny puppy was another band that i really got into around that time as well as some really you know underground stuff but you know also nine inch nails ministry those were kind of like the big ones and then so after metallica you know around that time they released load and reload and i was not super disappointed with those records, but they didn't really hit me the way their earlier stuff did. So, but Antichrist Superstar, well, actually, before Antichrist Superstar, I did hear, hear the Smells Like Children EP because, you know, um, Sweet Dreams was getting quite a bit of play on the radio around mm. here at the time. And then when Antichrist Superstar came out, you know, I was really into that record, which is definitely my all time favorite record. You know, uh, I don't think anyone will ever release another record that hit me harder than Antichrist Superstar. Mm. And then shortly after that, um, you know, I went to go see KMFDM in concert and Lords of Acid was headlining and KMFDM was direct support. And this little band called Rammstein was opening <laughs> and it was their first tour in the United States. And then once again, everything changed. You know, I just, I got really, really into Rammstein. And shortly after that, I got really into a band from Canada called The Birthday Massacre. And they're kind of a mix between goth, metal, industrial, and have like an 80s vibe to them as well. And, but I would say Marilyn, you know, Metallica, Marilyn Manson, and Rammstein, you know, in my teenage years, those were the big three. And after that, 
I don't think I've discovered a band that hit me quite as hard as those three. And, you know, as you get older, it gets a little bit harder. And, you know, especially when you're, you know, surrounded in, you know, your career is, you know, in the music industry, I think you start to get a little bit jaded and a little bit more picky about your music. And, you know, I haven't really discovered a band since then that, you know, it really hits me in that same way as it does when I was a teenager. So that's pretty much the musical journey right there throughout my life. So what about then, you know, that's quite an interesting point you bring up, you know, you know, I'm only two years younger than you and I know that kind of feeling with the older you get, the influences or the sounds that you're getting into you. So, you know, without jumping too far forward, where do you now draw inspiration and motivation around you for writing a new album? Is a lot of it just drawing back on previous things or is it kind of just see where the the flow goes? I think I still get areas of um, inspiration from other places. You know, I didn't really get into Testament until I was in college. And when, you know, some of the older guys in Devil Driver, you know, they, um, you know, John Miller and John Berklin and Jeff Kendrick, when I met them when I was 18, they kind of opened my eyes to this whole European, mainly Scandinavia brand of metal. And, you know, I was already into, they're from England, obviously, but I got really into Carcass as Mm -hmm. well when I was in high school. And that was a big one. Heartwork is my most favorite death metal record. I kind of forgot to mention them. But, you know, they threw me bands like um, At the Gates, Opeth, In Flames, Dark Tranquility, and I really, that was, you know, I didn't. I didn't get into those bands to the same way I did, you know, Marilyn Manson, Metallica and Rammstein, like those three bands I was, you would, you could call that an obsession. And I love in flames. I love Opeth. I love at the gates, early stuff. And, you know, I did draw some inspiration from a lot of Scandinavian metal, especially when I first joined the band, I was writing in a very melodic, um, melodic way. And, you know, some of the other guys in Devil Driver weren't really too thrilled about that. Some of them were, some of them weren't. And I don't really write music in that way anymore. I definitely, I think I've evolved past that. But, you know, Testament specifically has uh, influenced some, some of my writing. And, you know, some of my writing, to tell you the truth, I don't know where it comes from. You know, these days I... You know, I try to get away from the way I used to do things and do things in a new way. And, you know, I'm trying not to repeat myself musically from album to album. And I kind of feel like I did that a little bit in the beginning and it's something I'm trying to get away from now. Yeah, it's, it it's, can't be easy. I think anyone listening, if they said do as many albums as you've done so far, I mean, trying to change it up each album can't be easy. I want to get all into those in a, in a sec, but I want to come back to when you first picked up a guitar. Um, was it during that Def Leppard period that you decided to pick up a guitar? And did you do lessons or were you a sit in your room and just play around on the guitar kind of kid? I first started taking guitar lessons when I was five or six years old. Oof. And I hated my guitar teacher. She was like this 
she was basically like a Joni Mitchell, I would say, you know, this kind of <laughs> hippie acoustic style. And she had a repertoire of, you know, or sorry, not a repertoire, a curriculum basically for all her students and just teaching me stuff I didn't want to learn. So that lasted about a year. And, and then I quit playing guitar until I was 10. Mm. And my mom went out and started calling around, you know, t around town and looking for someone that could teach me heavy metal because she knew that's all I really wanted to learn. And I really wanted to get back into guitar. So I was taking lessons and I went through, I would say, three guitar teachers. The first guy, um, he was actually in a Christian metal band called Vengeance Rising, I remember. <laughs> And I think they had a little bit of a falling. He went on tour and for about a month or two, and when, you know, he was supposed to come back and continue and teaching me, but uh, he never came back to the, the guitar shop and they replaced him with a guy named Brian. And he was a really good guitar teacher. He really lit a fire under my ass and he started teaching me, you know, like Megadeth and a lot of Metallica and just... And I eventually I ended up buying my first electric guitar from him as a Fender Squire. I still have it to this day. It's sitting in a closet at my parents' house. You know, hopefully I'll never be in a financial situation where I have to sell it, even though I could probably only get like a hundred bucks for it. <laughs> um, and then after that, I ended up, I found a teacher that I still see from time to time or, you know, where I live and named TJ Parker. And he was a very, very gifted blues, jazz, rock-oriented guitar player. And he started teaching me music theory when I was probably 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. And I stuck with him for a long time. And he, it was, it, he was probably the most important guitar teacher I ever had growing up. And he was very helpful for when I got to college and started, you know, working on my music degree there. And I kind of had a head start on the whole theory thing. And that helped me tremendously when, you know, I became a music major. So you're doing music major and I also know you had a couple of bands going in those early years. And, you know, did you learn a lot of lessons, not only about yourself, your abilities and the industry that you were able to translate into your first few years in Devil Driver or when you joined Devil Driver initially was a lot of it just learning on the fly? A lot of it was learning on the fly and it was a much different style than I was used to. So, you know, the first record was written by a guy named Evan Pitts that's, you know, not, that I replaced and he had this right-hand style that was just it was outside of my comfort zone and so it took me a little bit of work it wasn't anything you know super hard but I eventually got it and sorry um you know what the theory did help when I joined Devil Driver not so much with learning the songs but when we started working on the fury of our maker's hand you know, all the other guys in the band at the time didn't know any theory. You know, they were guys that purely went by what sounds good and used their ear, which was really good for me because I was kind of stuck in this musical theory box. And they helped me break out of it. And I really try not to use the theory as a guideline or it's 
I use it for help and, you know, it's nice to know, but working with guys for so many years and learning their riffs that were written in a way, you know, from people that don't know music theory, it, it really opened my eyes to the world uh, that I had kind of boxed myself into because I was looking at music theory more as, as rules that you had to abide by when you're writing. And that is a very, to me, a very dangerous way to become a songwriter because your music is not going to sound very original if you do it that way. But it does help, you know, like there's little things and, you know, the song Ruthless, for example, off of, you know, the first track of Pray for Villains, that was a song that, you know, kind of switched keys from here and there. And I remember John Berklin coming up to me and, you know, when we were demoing that song and it's like, OK, I need to get out of this and into this riff. How can we do it? And my knowledge of going for that I learned in college from how to change keys using common notes between both keys you know, kind of helped that particular us in that particular situation. And I was able to figure out a way using music theory to go from one key to another and then back into, into the original key of that song. What about with um, touring experience? Because, you know, if my memory serves me correctly, you initially came into Devil Driver as kind of a tour of, tour of fill-in. Um, and, you know, had you had much touring experience you know, being on the road, stuck in a van with, you know, a bunch of other dudes before you came in? Um, or again, is that another one where you had to adjust and learn to accept being on the road for long periods of time? Because Devil Driver are a touring band when they can tour, of course. I didn't have any touring experience whatsoever when I joined Devil Driver. I had never been on tour in my life. I was 23 years old. I had done shows around Santa Barbara and a couple here and there in LA. You know, I had played at the Whiskey. I had played at the Troubadour once, but it was all local stuff. I never traveled any further than that to do a show at that time. I never had a band in high school. You know, I couldn't find enough people to put a band together that I wanted to be in a band with anyway. Um, around that time. And as soon as I moved to Santa Barbara, I was in a band like within a month, I would, I would say. And, you know, we rehearsed a lot and we played a lot, but adjusting to touring life was very, very easy for me. You know, I had to drop out of college. I had one year left to get my music degree, which I still haven't finished. Um, going to try to see if I could actually finish, finish it during this pandemic, maybe. And, um, but I couldn't have been happier. You know, I wasn't, I was very impressed with my music education that I got at San, Santa Barbara city college. But when I transferred to the university, it was very history based and I did not like that. I wanted my degree really bad, but I wasn't going to say no to the chance to play in double driver. I thought that would have been stupid because this is basically what I was going to school for. And I had a job opportunity before I graduated. And I was like, you know, I can, I'll just have to go back some other time and finish my degree. But I loved it. You know, when I went on that first tour with devil driver, we were in Europe opening for in flames. You know, I went up in there as a fill in and it was only supposed to be three weeks. And, but when I was over there, I, kind of got word that, you know, I could become a permanent member. And it was up to me and one other guy that the guys knew back in Santa Barbara. And luckily they hired me. And I wasn't 
in a really good headspace at the time. You know, my girlfriend, you know, that I had, we had just broken up and, you know, it's, it was, it was a pretty sad situation because, you know, she had gotten back on some pretty hard drugs and there was nothing where I could really do to help her about that. And I really just wanted to get out of Santa Barbara and get my mind off things. And if you have trouble at home, going out on tour is the best medicine because you're around your friends, you're playing shows, you're having fun. And it really, it kind of picked me up out of this dark hole that I was in at the time. And I, I couldn't have been happier. You know, like I, <laughs> I remember telling the guys, like, I don't want to go back to my normal life, you know, the way it was before I went on tour with you guys. Like I will do whatever it takes to be in this band. And I kind of knew that they were going to pick me in the back of my head. And I was like, I am going to be in this fucking band. I don't, I don't care. Like one way or another, I'm going to figure out a way to be in devil driver. And luckily it turned out that way. Yeah. And creatively, you know, that must've been a good outlet for you as well with everything that was going on. And, you know, the first thing you have a part in playing is what I would consider a lot of diehard fans like myself would, a lot of people would say is the Black Album, the classic, The Fury of Our Maker's Hand. At the time, did that feel like it was that hot of an album? Because I went back, hadn't heard it in probably a couple of months, went back and listened to it the other day. And it really is banger after banger after banger on that album. It, it feels like there was something in the water when that album was written and made. We were all real hungry and excited. And, you know... It's not that I don't like Devil Driver's first record, but since I was, you know, almost completely written by Evan Pitts, it doesn't feel like us, Mm. you know, and he was in the band for such a short time and he only did two tours with the band. Things weren't really working out with him on tour from what the guys told me, you know, it was like Evan's a really, really good guy. And, you know, I still, you know, we, we've, kept in touch over the years he he and i were friends and he gave me his blessing i remember him calling me up when they hired me and he called me up and gave me his blessing to you know take his place in devil driver and i thought that was really cool of him to do but you know it was such a different writing style than where the rest of us wanted to take devil driver and so when we wrote fury you know a lot of people think that i came in and I had a big influence on the way that record was written, but to tell you the truth, I didn't really write a whole lot on that record. You know, I wrote pale horse apocalypse. I wrote hold back the day and with other little parts here and there, but I was the new guy in the band and I didn't want to, you know, it's like when you join a club, you, you know, it takes time. You got to work your way up. And, uh, you know, the guys started, you know, letting their guard down with me as every album passed. And I started writing more and more as time went on. But, you know, whenever you're doing a record, you don't know how the public's going to perceive it. You might think it's the best thing on earth and you release it. And you just kind of get this reaction where people are like, eh, you know, like our outlaws record, the, the covers record we did, you know, it's like a lot of people don't like that record, but I knew that was going to be the case going in because a lot of people don't care for country music that are into metal, but there are a lot of people that do. So that album was really 50, 50. We knew that was going to happen. We didn't care. 
it was something that the band wanted to do for fun because there's at least three of us in the band that have a pretty big passion for outlaw country music. Mm. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, it was, we didn't know how it was going to be perceived. And, you know, it, we, we ended up getting a lot of respect that we didn't have you know, because of fear of maker hand, fear the fear of our maker's hand that we didn't have from the first record. You know, because that first record was basically a transition for Des from Cold Chamber into Devil Driver, and I think it kind of laid the groundwork for where we were going to go. And then when we did the Fury, that was like, okay, this is what we want Devil Driver to be. Well, I also think one thing that you guys have done along the way, which is slowly but surely built to the point where you are now is that you've also built an establishment within the scene, within the industry, within a fan base that you have diehard loyal fans and you've kind of got a name now where you can comfortably experiment with something like the Outlaws covers album. Yes. And as well as experiment with, you know, things that we put on dealing with demons, like the song Wishing. You know, it, Des was really nervous about releasing that song at first because of the clean vocals, and he didn't know how fans were going to perceive it. And rightfully so, you know, it's it's kind of a, you know, <laughs> certain bands can try things and it can go really bad for them. And, but I do think that we're at the point in our career, you know, almost 20 years in and we have, you know, once the volume two is released, that'll be our 10th record. And I, uh, you know, it's, I think we have to start taking some chances. Otherwise we're just going to be releasing the same old stuff, you know, and we're not, we're all in different stages of our life. You know, what's going on in your life really affects your music, your age, your outlook on, on life. And, you know, things change. And I don't, like I said earlier, I don't write music the same way I used to. You know, it's obviously similar. It's still me, but people grow, people change. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to write music the same way I did. I want to, I like throwing curveballs to people and, you know, have them be like, whoa, that's, that's interesting. Never heard them do that before. And, you know, like you said earlier, it's like, you know, the more they listen to it, sometimes the more they like it. You know, and a good example is, is when Marilyn Manson released Mechanical Animals, I was taken back by it. You know, I was expecting Antichrist Superstar Part 2, and I really wanted that. But Marilyn Manson went in a completely different direction with that record. And now it's one of my favorite records, but it took me some time because it was not what I expected. Well, to be honest, you know, you mentioned that song, Wishing. That's actually my favorite track on the album. Like... It, it, I can't. It happens to be a lot of people's favorites, apparently. Oof. Like, I mean, when I first heard that, it was initially, I think the first thing that shocked me, like you mentioned, is the cleans, but I wasn't shocked as in, oh, God, this is bad. I was like, ooh, okay, <laughs> I like this. And then I instantly, you know, repeated it. I played it again. And then I was like, yeah, okay. And then the other day, I was mowing the lawns, and I literally just listened to that song for the whole time mowing the lawns. That's rad. I love to hear that. That's. You know, it's you're literally just giving me goosebumps a little bit because, you know, it's 
I finally feel like we released a record that is on par with Fury and The Last Kind Words. And, you know, I'm really proud of every record that we've done, but there was just something about this record that felt more right than it has in a long time. And, you know, I... I I was I knew that we had something special with dealing with demons that we haven't had before, and I think having Steve Evans producing it, and me and Neil and Austin, who are the core writers for the music these days, we just get along so well. And with Trust No One, we were just kind of getting to know each other. A lot of band members had quit. We were going through a transition that is, you know, was difficult for me and Des because, you know, we had played with the other guys for so long. And it's scary with new members sometimes. You don't, you know, you don't really know a person until you go on tour with them for a couple of years. And we've never been in, into an argument. You know, it's like I have I have found the best writing team that I ever had in my life. And once we got to know each other, we became really close friends. And, you know, the music just came pouring out of us in the most wonderful way. And adding Steven to the whole thing, Steve Evitz, he just made it even better. You know, it was a really, really fun record to make, whereas some records in the past with us have been, have had some very frustrating moments. And not to say that Dealing de- with Demons didn't have any frustrating moments, but they were very far and few between. Now, a question, you know, obviously with dealing is, you know, as as we know, it's part one and it's considered and been spoken about that it's a double concept album. So my question is, like, how did you guys approach the writing process? You know, I read that and it's been said that there was a lot of songs written, but were you always from the offset when you went into the writing process knowing it was going to end up being split into two albums or did you just write a lot of songs and then went, what are we going to do with all these? We knew that we were going to do a double record. Des had been floating that idea around for a long time. It was something that was on his bucket list in life. He wanted, always wanted to release a double record. I was hesitant to do it in the past, but with Neil and Austin on board and the way my relationship was with those guys, this was the time to do it. And it felt right. You know, we had worked with Steve a little bit on the outlaws record and I just had a really good vibe from him. And, you know, on top of the fact that he lives very close to me and his studios, you know, close to all of us. And, you know, just kind of the way it went. You know, it was just, it was fun and easy. Did you approach the writing process differently also? You know, I mean, one thing listeners may or may not know, but when you're putting together the tracks um, on a release, you know, there's a lot of thought and process in where things are sitting in the order. So was that playing into your thought process at all in the writing? You know, you're thinking, okay, these couple of songs could be an opener, or was it just right as many songs as we can, and then we'll break it down later. It, it was right as many songs as we could and break it down later. And, you know, we had more songs that were, you know, some of the stuff didn't make it past me and Neil's own demoing process. And then, so, you know, me, Neil, and Austin will write. And then eventually when we're happy with songs, we'll present it to the other guys. And, you know, then we'll, 
basically meet up in my studio in my house and say, what do we want to work on? And, you know, one day we'll work on Neil's. One day we'll work on one of Austin's. One day we'll work on one of mine. And we just wrote a ton, knowing that we needed around 20 songs before we went into pre-production with Steve. And the only thing that I thought about consciously is I was like, okay, we're going to put out a double record here. There's going to be a lot of material for people to absorb. I just want to make sure that it's diverse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably more diverse than the way I've looked at previous records. So what I always have a tendency to do is after I've written, let's say somewhere between five to 10 songs, you know, I always have a chart, you know, up in my studio of the songs that we're working on that I'm confident that we're going to present to Des and have him start writing lyrics to. And I'll take a look and see, you know, what, you know, what the tempo is of the songs and what key they're in and what tuning they're in. And if I see an overabundance of songs in one range, you know, I'll purposely say, okay, you know, I'm going to pick up my seven string and I'm going to write a song in a tempo that we haven't used yet. And I'm going to start also make sure it's in a different key. You know, obviously when you switch guitars and you're in a lower tuning, writing a different key is you know, pretty easy, but those are some things that I've always done on records. And, you know, with, from, I wrote a lot more on trust no one than some of the other guys. And, but this one was, you know, between like me and Neil, you know, and Austin writes too, but Neil and I wrote a majority of, of the record. And by that time I, you know, I let my guard down with Neil and let him write a lot more. Uh, for this one and just welcomed his songs you know to a greater extent than I did when he first joined the band and he has a really good ability to you know write a number of songs that don't sound similar to one another another thing that comes across when you when you listen to the album and it's not to say it's not prevalent on other albums but I think having the covers album in between trust no one and now coming into dealing you guys sound a lot more refreshed, a lot more energized. And I don't mean you weren't on Trust No One or Winter Kills or any of these albums, but there seems to be someone sparked a you know a fire under your ass to make this to the best ability that you can. Yeah, and my my st- you know, I, unfortunately when I was writing with dealing with demons, I was in a pretty dark place in my life. You know, this I had got myself into a couple situations that, you know, I had to dig myself out of. And it wasn't a very pleasant time for me. But I had a very tight bond with Austin and Neil. You know, I, I considered those two two of my best friends, and I can guarantee I'll be friends with them until the day I die. And I think going through what I was going through and then having this comfort zone with Neil and Austin at the time, you know, made me even made me appreciate the time I spent with them more than I would have normally. Hmm. And, um, you know, we were all kind of going through stuff, but we had each other. So, you know, I think that added to the happiness that we were feeling at the, you know, working on music together. And it, 
You know, it, it's a hard thing to pinpoint. And looking back on it, those are some of the few things that I can that I think helped influence the record and lit a fire under our asses. You know, it's like, we don't want to deal with our bullshit in our lives, but we have each other. And it's, you know, I think we have the ability to make something really special. And I think we did, you know, it's just everything really fell into place for this record, you know, between my relationship with Neil Austin and then our relationship with Steve Evitz, you know, it's like we all became really close friends. I mean, we had to spend a lot of time together on this record and, you know, more than usual. And, you know, we all, all of us keep in touch on like a weekly basis now, you know, we're always texting each other and making jokes and just being good friends. It's really cool. And I'm super thankful that, you know, I had the opportunity to work with all these guys. Now, you know, being a double album and double concept, all this kind of terminology, you know, you've mentioned all the songs you wrote and, you know, did you go and record them all at once or did you smash out volume one first or number one first and then you're going to go back and do number two? Like, how did you approach this part of it? We did it all at once. You know, we didn't know what songs were going to be on volume one and we didn't know what songs were going to be on volume two until everything was mixed and mastered. And Neil came up with the first track listing and sent it to me. I liked it. I don't think I made any changes to it. And then we sent it to Dez and, you know, because he wanted our input on the whole thing. And I think Dez and the record label changed it up a little bit here and there um, from what Neil put together until what we have now but uh you know we didn't uh we went in knowing that it was going to be a double record but we did not go in <laughs> we didn't know until the very end what was going to go on which volume well it's also quite interesting because you guys not only were dealing with demons but outlaws to the end you guys have also started to push things in a different venture than a lot of people expect, not only from Devil Driver, but from in the heavy industry, because you did a volume one covers album, which apparently there will be a number two, I know Des said, and then you're doing this double album uh, with Dealing With Demons. Is it about making things exciting for you guys by pushing the boundaries, or is it just giving it a go and enjoying the moment of seeing if it works or not? Because there's a lot of risk you know, so far it looks like it works because the music is outstanding, but it, there's a lot of risk involved in doing those two projects. I, when I sit down and try to write music, I don't try to really, I, I don't really try to think about how the fans are going to perceive it. You know, it's just when I have something that I think is good, it's just the feeling that I get just as if you, any listener hearing the song and goes, ooh, something about that that I like. And, you know, like I said before, I'm at the point in my life where it's like, you know, in the early days of Devil Driver, we would never in a million years add any kind of electronics or, you know, um, it would just be straightforward, you know, guitars, bass, drums and vocals. And over time, and you know, we don't do a lot of it, but, you know, I started adding some things into some parts of the song, you know, electronics and using you know, synthesizers and stuff like that that I have in my studio. And it's, 
I just hope that if it makes me happy, it's going to make other people happy. And that's mm. the best I can do. And that's the best I want to do because, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> this is why we don't have other people write our music for us. And this is why I write music the day, the way that I want is because I got to live with myself. And <laughs> if I did it any other way, you know, I, uh, I would feel tarnished if, mm. you know, I gave up my integrity as a songwriter in some shape or form. It's, you know, I can only write one way at the time in that exact moment on that day, in that hour, in that minute. And even if five minutes pass, you know, you're in a slightly different state of mind and things are going to be different. So I just sit down with my guitar and I start, you know, just jamming with it. And, you know, if I get stuck and can't come up with anything, I'll break out my axe effects and, you know, try to come up with some cool effect. And that alone can inspire me to, you know, to come up with something cool that I normally wouldn't have just messing around with all my different toys that I have in my studio. And, um, you know, that's just the way I go about it. I always have. It's also got to be quite, um, an interesting time for you guys to not be able to get out and tour, um, and tour off the back of this release because, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the Devil Driver are a touring band and you're known for how hard and how often you guys are on the road. So it must be difficult um, to not get out on the road and support an album like this to get it out to more masses. It is, but I am, you know, we. I find comfort in the fact that we don't have a choice. You know, there's nothing we can do about it right now. So there's no point complaining about it. But I am very grateful that out of all the times in history for this band to, that we just we decided to do a double record during a pandemic when we can't go out on tour so i'm i feel fortunate that we are able to give the public you know a first half taste of what dealing with demons is and the response has been overwhelmingly positive on this one and so we have volume two second half of the record to release when we can go out on tour. So, you know, if we were going to go in and do another record and we didn't have a volume two, I feel like this dealing with demons would not necessarily get, you know, swept under the rug, but it might get overshadowed by the fact that we're not touring on it. And maybe during the pandemic, we would do another record hypothetically. And, wait until the pandemic is over and then go tour on the new album. And we don't have to do that. And I'm really glad that we decided to do a double record right now because we have the ability to give the public a taste and then follow up when we can tour with the second half of dealing with demons. It's also good because everyone, you know, in, you know, you think has the extra time now to listen to it. You know, a lot of people are sitting at home. They've got the extra time to, crank the music so i mean that that also must be a helpful thing knowing that there's more people that can consume it at the moment because they should all know about it really yeah it's you know and i kind of related to marilyn manson's new record you know he hasn't put out a record since hollywood in 2000 that has really really hit me hard I, i like almost all his records but um we are chaos is 
by far the best thing that he's released. And it's, you know, I, I hope a lot of people feel the same way about dealing with demons as I do about We Are Chaos. I was just like, oh, finally they've released, you know, he's released a record that I can listen to on repeat over and over and over again. And, you know, I think I've listened to it almost every single day since it's came out. And it's, uh, it, 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 that album has made me very happy to, because I'm very hard to impress these days with metal. And um, that record, obviously, it's not a very heavy record, you know, but it's a really, really good one. And I absolutely love it. So I know that I know that feeling from a fan's perspective. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think it's I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed at the moment. You know, I've, I've only had it for a short period of time, understandably. But um, what I'm most excited about and what I thought about after when I gave it a full couple of spins is this isn't the end of it. You know, there is a part two. Um, and I think for a lot of listeners including myself, that is really quite exciting. It doesn't happen a lot. You know, you hear an album and you think, all right, that's the end of that chapter. But this, it's, okay, won't be long, I'm going to get the second chapter of this. It's it's amazing. Um, I want to ask two more questions and then we'll wrap things up. And one was, you know, and I think everyone that listens to Dealing With Demons can hear it. You guys are feeling, sounding refreshed. You know, you're pushing the envelope with things like... Um, wishing and stuff like this so i mean how do you stay motivated to keep producing music um how do you not feel stale and repetitive because clearly you guys aren't you're you're refreshed you're motivated and you're pushing i i've never had a problem with motivation writing music you know i i don't know what i would do if i couldn't write music anymore you know that's that is my whole identity in life. And I, you know, I, I hope I never lose that drive to do it because, you know, I've seen a lot of my friends who were amazing songwriters and in bands that, you know, either broken up or, you know, they were sick and tired of not making a decent living and living from tour to tour and, you know, just kind of fall off the map and sink into more of a normal lifestyle. But, luckily devil driver does fairly well and you know we always have you know almost since the beginning you know obviously we had our days when we were all dirt poor and <laughs> you know hardly making a dime on tour but um we've gotten past that and you know we can make a living off of it and also you know a lot of us do other things we're at home i produce mix records you know and do other musical musical things whenever i can but motivation it's always there you know it's, sometimes it's a little hard for me when i'm working on a record and i'm working on it seven days a week you know like with dealing with demons you know i wake up and it's almost a little difficult for me to get in my studio and get going but i just take baby steps there you know i wake up i have breakfast you know i drink some coffee and i eventually i'll walk into my studio with my coffee and I won't feel very motivated, but as soon as I open up uh, a session and listen to maybe what I did the night before, something just sparks in my head and there's some, there's some little change that I want to make to it or I'll have an idea and and, and then I'm, I'm kind of rolling for the rest of the day after that. And that's 
pretty much my whole process of getting motivated. It doesn't take much for me. And, you know, I've, I finally have this environment. I mean, believe it or not, most of the demoing writing process was when I still lived with my parents and I had a studio in my bedroom that I grew up in. And, you know, now I have a house and I, you know, I built a very legit studio in there and I just absolutely love being in that room. You know, I, even when I'm not writing music, I spend a good amount of time in there. It's soundproofed. It's quiet. Sometimes I sleep in there when, uh, you know, when I know the, the, you know, the garbage trucks are coming or going to wake me up if I hear them <laughs> on my street in the morning because they come really early. And, I, you know, I just love it in there. And along with, you know, all the bands that I've worked with in there, you know, we did, you know, the last Wednesday 13 record in that studio. And, you know, Ramon, the guitar player texted me the other day and just be like, dude, I miss that room so much. I can't wait to get back in there. And that was important for me as you know, for myself, as well as other musicians, when I built that place, I wanted it to have a vibe and, you know, where you want to create, it's relaxing. You know, and I painted the walls blue on purpose just because I find blue to be a very relaxing color. And I, uh, just stepping into that room and looking around at what I've been able to acquire over the years, all the different guitars and amplifiers. And, you know, it's an adult playhouse for musicians and just stepping in there sometimes is all I need. You know, I will walk in there. This is where I create music. And as soon as I get in there, I'm just like, all right, let's, uh, let's get to work and see what happens. What about, you know, the industry and, you know, you're someone who's in my age brackets, you've seen the industry ebb and flow and change in many different directions and you've been in, you know, Devil Driver for so long now, you've seen the industry also ebb and flow and go through many changes Um, and now we're in kind of a weird transition with, you know, this pandemic and what the fallout may or may not be, Um, you know, where do you see the heavy side of the music industry at the moment and where do you think it can and can't go going forward? Well, you know, I entered the music industry at probably the worst time in the last hundred years. You know, I, I got in there shortly after Napster hit, I think that was around 99, 2000. Mm. And I joined devil driver in 2004 and, you know, right when CD sales were just plummeting and record labels being so stubborn about embracing what was happening you know i they just didn't want to accept it so they just started raising the prices on cds which looking back was really really stupid i mean i know they didn't really have an outlet to go look to but if they all embraced mp3s and you know streaming you know i think maybe it would be better off than it is now and so i always just you know, it was one of the another of those times where I just had to go, well, we don't really have a choice in the matter, you know, find comfort in that and do the best you can. And the fact that Devil Driver was able to keep our head above water through that whole period, you know, it really shows something. And metal is more of a religion to fans than a lot of other people that like other genres of music. It's, it, mm-hmm. I feel it's it's part of their lifestyle and you know, you can release a bad record that your fans aren't going to like and come back with another, you know, and they'll still, you know, 
want to come back and see what you release next. You know, I mean, I think we all relate to Metallica on that level. You know, they came out with Load and Reload, which are good records, but, you know, not my favorite. I did not like St. Anger. I did not like Lulu. But then, you know, they kind of revived themselves with Death Magnetic and hard, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And it's like, okay, you know, this is more the Metallica that I want to listen to. So you always keep on going back. So, you know, my parents always used to get on my case when I was in just joint double driver and, you know, saying things like, well, I wish you would have joined a band that was a little bit more radio friendly so you can make more money. And over time it's, you know, I've discovered, yeah, I could have joined a band or if I had, you know, if the, you know, the opportunity was presented to me, but that was more radio friendly, but one, I probably would have been bored out of my mind playing the music. And two, more than likely, it wasn't going to last 20 years. You know, you get, you might not make as much money as a pop artist in metal, but you're going to have a lot more longevity because of the loyalty that you get from metal fans. It's just the way it is. And um, over time, you know, I've explained this to my parents and they're kind of like, well, you know, I never thought about that. You know, and, and Neil, our guitar player is a great example. Before he was in De- Devil Driver, he was playing with a, an American Idol guy named David Cook. And he was he was making good money for a long time, you know, and um, but he was bored out of his mind, you know, playing those those tunes. He wanted to be in a heavy metal band because that's what he loved. That was his passion. And um you know, now, unfortunately, David Cook does not do nearly what he used to. And there's no way that he would be able to make the money that he did in David Cook's heyday. So it's just kind of like you go up quick and then you can fall really quick. And Devil Driver, it's always been a nice, steady incline over the years, you know, to the point where, you know, you get to the point in a metal band where most metal fans have either heard you and like you or have dismissed you as a band that they don't like. And I still think we have room to grow and which is why we're trying new things. But, you know, we have a very loyal following. And I think for the most part, they're always going to be there for us as long as we can keep on going out on tour and making records. As far as the, the pandemic goes, mm. Who who knows what's going to happen? You know, I know a lot of venues are closing. I did hear a statistic that I hope is not true, that about a third of people in the entertainment industry are going to be forced to walk away and find a different job because they can't afford, you know, to survive through this whole pandemic and then try to get things started up again after it's over. But music will survive one way or another. And new venues will open up and it's it's probably going to take some time, but eventually things will recover, I think. Yeah, I think it too, because, you know, as you said, we always need music. You always need your creative people um, in the world. Now, Mike, we're going to wrap things up with um, a fun segment. Everyone's had it. Uh, your frontman, Des, had it. Um, everyone has it. It's a kind of pick... Pick your poison is what it's called, and I give you two options, and you pick your favorite of the two. Okay, so we're just gonna okay. we're just gonna have a little bit of fun here to end things. For some reason, some people, um, when this goes live, they're only listening through to hear what Mike picks. Um, they've they've just sat through the conversation, probably enjoyed it without a doubt, enjoyed it, but they've just looked forward to this. So, 
Don't need to justify your answer, but if you're worried why you picked that answer and you think people will have a go at you, which I doubt it, you can answer why. Now, okay. pizza or a burger? A burger. Okay. Ribs or brisket? Ribs. Risotto or pasta? Pasta. Soft taco or crunchy taco? Crunchy taco. Chicken or beef? Can I pick neither? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's justify. I'm. I'll justify that is because I am currently dating a vegan. Ooh. Okay. And um, her cooking is literally the most amazing food I've ever tasted in my life. And she cooks for me, for me a lot. And it's all vegan food. Mm. So I've actually been, I, you know, I still do eat meat, but um, I would call myself a half-ass vegan these days. <laughs> um, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Uh, both. Ooh. That is my favorite food on earth. And... I I eat it every single day. There's nothing that I enjoy more than peanut butter. And I have both in my cupboard at home at all times. What about a cup of coffee or a cup of tea? Yeah, a cup of coffee without a doubt. Um, beer or whiskey? Both, once again. Beer and whiskey are my two favorite alcoholic drinks. Um, cook at home or go out for a meal? Cook at home. Um, when you can or when you used to be able to, do you want to see a movie at the cinema or see it on the comfort of your couch at home? Depends on the movie. I think some movies are worthy of going to the theater and seeing it on a big screen. And the last movie I went to go see, I believe, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which turned out turns out to be one of my favorite movies all, of all time now. And... Uh, um, I'm I'm very glad that I got to see that movie in the theater before the pandemic hit. Yeah, it's a good movie, great movie. Um, spend the day at the beach or spend the day at the snow? No, oh, the beach. <laughs> no um, question there. Uh, cat or dog? Dog. I just got myself a new dog two weeks ago. Ooh, what kind? Pitbull. Yeah, nice. Don't, now, aren't pit bulls illegal in Australia? And you, but you guys call them something different, like American staffies or something like that. Yeah, we've got an we've got an English staffie ourselves, um, and when people see the dog, they automatically just kind of walk on the other side of the street. Um, yeah, but she's the <laughs> she's the most harmless dog in the world. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit weird, you know, it, it, as they say, it takes one person to ruin it for everyone. That's just how it goes, unfortunately. Um, okay. A couple of movie ones and then a couple of music ones. So Terminator or Predator? Terminator. Rambo or Rocky? I would say Rambo if. The other Rambos after the first one were as good as the first one. Unfortunately, they aren't. Um, the second and newest one that was extraordinarily violent mm. was very good. But I'm going to have to go with Rocky. 
because mm. I feel there's more good Rocky movies than Rambo movies. What about Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, South Park or Simpsons? South Park. Uh, Slayer or Pantera? Pantera. Okay, next one should be simple. Metallica or Megadeth? You know what? I, I, I always... Metallica and Megadeth were kind of my two favorite bands at the same time when I was growing up. But I would always say Metallica only because up until the Black Album, there was not a single song Metallica put out that I didn't like. Like, I literally, of every single thing I heard from Kill 'em All up till the Black Album, and even including all their B sides and stuff that they released on Garage Days. But Megadeth, even on Countdown to Extinction, and, you know, Rust in Peace, I think, is a great record from start to finish. But there are some songs on Countdown to Extinction and Euthanasia. And that are, you know, those are probably my favorite Megadeth records Hmm. that I don't like. There are not many of them, but there's a couple. And, but everything I liked, you know, every song I liked from Metallica up until that point, and I still do. So that's, I always told people, you know, that's why I always like Metallica a little bit more than Megadeth. Um, Okay, a couple more music ones and then we're done. What about Cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia Murder? Cannibal Corpse. Okay. What about In Flames or Soil Work? In Flames. Um, you're playing a show. Do you want to see stage dives going on or mic grabs going on? If, let's imagine both can happen at a show. <laughs> stage diving. Um, you're going to go to a show. Do you want to watch it from the pit or up by the sound desk? Up by the sound desk. Now, second last one. Technically, they have... they. One needs the other to exist, but let's imagine only one existed. Would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? Well, I'm not getting any younger, and I do enjoy my time at home, so I would have to say recording for the rest of my life. Okay, and the last one, I'm going to give you your all-time favorite album. Now, the way I give it to you is the only way you can listen to it. Do you want it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Those are my only three options, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, we could do I'll... we could do cassette too if you wanted on cassette. Nah, I'm gonna say with my phone because then I can listen to it anywhere. Mm. Yeah, spot on. Um, Mike, thank you so much. Um, a lot of love, a lot of respect, and really appreciate this. Yeah, you've got a big time fan and supporter um, from Brisbane, and this was this has meant the world to me. So I really appreciate this, man. You're welcome. And it uh, means a lot coming from anyone in Australia because if I had to live anywhere else in the world, it would be Australia. And I absolutely, absolutely love your country. I'm really appreciative of this. Uh, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Good talking to you.
So that was my chat with Mike of Devil Driver. At the end there, you heard the band's track, Wishing. The second track was Witches. Both of those are from the band's most recently released album, Dealing with Demons, Volume 1. You then heard Head Onto Heartache, which is from the album The Last Kind Words. And the final song you heard was Just Run, which is from the absolute classic fucking album, The Fury of Our Maker's Hand. Now's a part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So, if you enjoyed the music, or you enjoyed the conversation, now's your chance. Get online, stream it, download it. Get into that new album, Dealing With Demons Volume 1. If you're into physicals, head down to your local CD store, or get online and buy a physical CD or vinyl. And lastly, if you're into merch, get a hoodie. Get a t-shirt, get some moss shorts, help the band out, help this band keep going. I've got to take this moment to thank Mike again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the mosh zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Keep in touch. Look forward to touching base with you soon. And that's it. That's the mosh zone, episode 139. Done, dusted, all wrapped up locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So, If you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.